This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So how are you? God, you look so well. It's really annoying. Honestly, I think that it has to do with the sun at the Baltic Sea. We've got a, a second home over there. Gilad, can I hear you? Hey, yeah. How do I sound? I've got an external mic here. You sound very good. Thank you for doing this. Jamil, hello. Everybody. Hi, Jamil. Katie, do you want to just check about where the Mighty Mooch is? Can I just run through how we're going to do this? In a moment, I think Anthony Scaramucci is joining us too. I was going to basically kick off with Anthony and say, you know, what do you think Twitter means to Trump? How does he see it? Is it a business, is it a platform, etc.? And then I was hoping to try and really have a conversation that runs through, if you like, the two halves of this conversation. The first half, which is, what should Twitter have done while Trump was on it, Right. And was Twitter right or wrong to ban him? I, who should who should make that decision? Hello, Anthony. How are you? You know, guys, I'm sorry about that. The uh, they had me on a Google Meet link. No problem at all. Listen, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? I'm great. Hello, and welcome to a thinking. I'm James Harding, and for some weeks now. I've been in this podcast studio talking about all the different battles for truth. Battles in our history, in our justice system, in our journalism. But the fact is, I'm not sure we'd even be here if it weren't for Donald J. Trump, if it weren't for Twitter. It seemed as though they've been the Fred and Ginger of social media. Theirs was a dance that entranced us all. But then, after a sellout tour, it came to an end after the events of January the 6th on Capitol Hill. Donald Trump was barred, then banned from Twitter. In the last few days since we recorded this, Facebook's oversight board has offered its own judgment on banning Trump. In short, it said, look, it's understandable, but please think again. Facebook's Supreme Court, which we discussed, in fact, in an earlier thinking with its architect, Noah Feldman, well, Facebook's Supreme Court offered anything but a final ruling. The argument is set to continue. And as you'll hear in this thinking, the final in our series on the battle for truth, it remains trench warfare when it comes to Twitter and Trump. You'll notice that like the trenches, it's a bit blokey. 
In this, you're right, and I have to say we're wrong. My apologies. But I hope you'll listen past it this time, because as you'll hear, the arguments are personal and cultural. But I hope you will, as I did, come away with a clearer sense of what to think. What to think about the balancing of rights in particular, the interests of the citizen versus the rights of the speaker, the priority of society over personal individual freedoms, and the responsibility that does, in the end, sit with the platform, not just the person on it. So let's just return to Washington and that moment when, although the curtain has already come down, Mr. Trump is still on stage, hoping for an encore. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. It began just before midday as thousands gathered near the White House to hear Donald Trump speak at a Save America rally. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. We're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol. We're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. The pro-Trump crowd fought with the police, trying to break through their lines, intoxicated by the unlikely prospect of reversing America's election outcome. The situation has reached a, a dire point where the U.S. Capitol is now in lockdown. This is exactly what was feared, but in no way is this a surprise. It has been fueled by the president's rhetoric. I call on President Trump to go on national television now to fulfill his oath and defend the Constitution and demand an end to this siege. Capitol Police say four people are dead as a result of yesterday's siege on the U.S. Capitol. Three of those people experienced medical emergencies. Initially, Twitter barred Donald Trump from the site for 12 hours. Two days later, he was banned indefinitely. You will never again see a tweet from President Trump. A short time ago, the company suspended him forever. Tonight, a deafening silence from the president's Twitter account in his waning days as commander-in-chief. What's always been Donald Trump's megaphone, now silenced. To his supporters, this was an unacceptable assault on free speech by big tech. To his detractors, it felt like Twitter had turned a blind eye for four years, as if after the stadium tour, they'd cut him off mid-encore. It now feels quieter, for sure. But does barring entry to the public square change the nature of public discourse? It certainly feels like it has. It certainly feels that with Trump silenced, the conversation has changed. Many people who long disagreed with Donald Trump now disagree even more vehemently with his silencing by Jack Dorsey, the chief executive of Twitter. Trump and Twitter have come to symbolize the equivalent of a global First Amendment for the Internet age. Who controls the off switch? To discuss this, I'm joined by Anthony Scaramucci, the former White House Director of Communications, by Kai Diekman, the former editor of Built, 
by Gilad Edelman, who's a political writer at Wired magazine, Jamil Jaffer, who's the director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University, which was created to defend the freedoms of speech and the press in the digital age, and by my colleague, Dave Taylor, editor at Tortoise, and, if you like, a recovering Washington correspondent. Why don't I start, though, with Anthony Scaramucci. Anthony, tell us, if you like, what you think is the relationship between Trump and Twitter. How does he see the platform? Well, it's like, uh, you know, when you have like an abused child where the parent is abusing the child, Trump is a child abusing the parent. And the parent, in fact, is Twitter. So it's almost like he's an overgrown fat kid beating up on his father. And so that's the metaphor that I would use for this, the relationship between Trump and, and Twitter. And I think what eventually happened is uh, somewhere in Jack Dorsey's calendar, he had written down that he was going to blow Trump out of Twitter. Uh, he was probably waiting for January 20th. And he probably wrote that down sometime in 2017. I think when Mika Brzezinski, when Trump was saying that her facelift was dripping blood, on the floor, on the rug in Mar-a-Lago. So that was misogynist, it was sexist, and it was a vicious attack on a woman in the media. Uh, That was one of the big seismic moves for Twitter. They were debating whether or not to pull him there, but because he was the president of the United States, they made a decision to stay with him until the insurrection. It's obviously, he's a seditious traitor, and a domestic terrorist organizer. And so I think once he crossed over into that realm of ultraviolence, uh, inflicting it on his own government, I think they decided to pull him. And Anthony, people listening to you will appreciate that you and he had a spectacular falling out. Let me just take your abusive relationship metaphor. One of the things that people will say when they're looking at abusive relationships of any kind is that people respond often too little too late. What do you make of the complaint that Twitter's failing in this, that Jack Dorsey's failing in this, was that, as you say, there was good reason to act, that actually that should have happened much, much sooner? Well, I think he was in a very tough spot. I think that if you're you're sitting there with your outside counsel, your board of directors, this is the president of the United States. We elected, unfortunately, and I helped to, uh, helped in a small way, I guess, to elect somebody that was just had mental illness. It was very abnormal. Um, you're sitting there with unprecedented type of activity, unprecedented type of communication coming from the president of the United States, and you're trying to make a decision where you're, you know, you're big tech. You're trying to balance between free speech, recognizing that the words and messaging coming from the White House are important words and messages. You may not like them. Uh, you mentioned the fact that we had a falling out. We did have a falling out, but like, you know, I know how to handle a bully. Uh, you know, Jack Dorsey was having a hard time handling a bully. I'll give you an example. When he was coming at me on Twitter, I went right back at him. I think I called him the, uh, the fattest president since William Howard Taft. That put me in the Twitter penalty box for about 12 hours. So it's okay for him. So it's okay for him to fat shame people, but I'm an ordinary citizen, so I can't fat shame him. And by the way, at the end of the day, I think Jack handled it well. I don't think he could have done much more than he did. So, Gilad Edelman, have a go at adjudicating this for us. Do you think that, firstly, Anthony's characterization is right or fair? And do you think that the criticism of Jack Dorsey in being too slow to act is accurate? Well, I think Anthony raises uh, a really important point, which is that in the, in the last and the last thing you were saying, Anthony, about how the same behavior by you led to punishment, um, but didn't in the case of President Trump, there are kind of 
at least two big questions that we can talk about here. One is what should their policies be? And, you know, even for tortoise media, I think that would take too much time for us to figure out today. But the other one, which I think we can grapple with a little bit more is should Twitter's or any platform's policies be applied differently to an elected official or other public officials than they applied to everybody else. The, the position that Twitter took was that, yes, the rules should apply differently to elected leaders because, you know, to paraphrase what they've said on the subject, because the things that elected officials say are themselves newsworthy and matters of public interest. And so they understandably didn't want to put themselves in a position of restricting people's access to that material. And Gilad, can I just ask you, what do you think of that? Because the one principle that applies and people immediately understand in a democracy is that no one is above the law, that whether you're elected or otherwise, you have certain responsibilities in, uh, before the law. Why should it be the case that you have certain responsibilities in the public square, the digital public square, if you're an ordinary citizen, but not if you're elected? Uh, you, you answered your own question. I, I don't think it's legitimate. I understand why they took that position, but and they're not alone. Facebook has had a version of this too, when there, there was a bit of controversy about their treatment of political ads, for example. The theory was, well, you know, what we're not going to fact we're going to fact check everybody else's ads, but not elected officials' statements. Um, because they're so important. And, and that, as I wrote at the time, that really in, inverts a key idea behind uh, our First Amendment tradition, which is that, this, you know, a really fundamental premise is that everybody's speech matters in, in the process of self-governance. And I think that, uh, to your point, James, it would be, first of all, it'd be much more administrable to just say we have one set of rules and, and they apply equally to everyone. And that would shape outcomes because there'd be some predictability. And the other thing, of course, is something is only newsworthy if it exists. I mean, if if we try to run a thought experiment where Trump, you know, let's say was found to have racked up and racked up enough violations to get kicked off the platform, it's not like he would then be that they would then be censoring his further statements. He would just be saying them somewhere someplace else. So, so Jamil Chafer, I just wanted to ask you, Jamil, I appreciate Gillard's characterization of this. You know, there's the kind of the Twitter Bible, the rules by which it operates, then there's the central principle of what you do or don't do in terms of an elected official. But there is also this question, the one that I kicked off with, i.e., who has their finger on the off switch? And I wondered whether you could address this. Who should make the decision about whether or not someone is eligible to operate, to speak on social media? Yeah, I mean, I think these questions are are related. I, I definitely understand the way that Anthony and Gilad are coming at this. You know, certainly true that there's something uncomfortable about Twitter applying one set of rules to most people and another set of rules to public officials. But I think thinking about it only from the perspective of you know the rights of the speaker is the wrong way to think about it. But if you think about it from the perspective of the the listeners, you know, there is a public interest in hearing Trump's speech, not because Trump's speech is newsworthy, but because Trump is a public official who's been elected to that position and, and exercises power uh, at our you know, behest. And we need access to his speech in order to figure out whether he's doing a good job, uh, what's going through his head. And I kind of think that, you know, especially when his speech is outrageous and offensive and wrong, it's important that the public hear it. 
if only because that gives us what we need to figure out who, you know, that we shouldn't vote for him next time. Jamil, that's, that's such an interesting argument and completely turns on its head the way in which I would have thought about the public interest. I, I would have thought that if you're encouraging people to, let's say, use detergent to try and deal with the coronavirus or you're inciting people towards violence, the instinct would be the public interest is best served by not hearing things that might put people in danger. But your point is that the public interest is best served by hearing as much as possible of what people in power say? Yes, although I would draw a distinction between the two problems that you mentioned. So one is the misinformation, disinformation problem, uh, and the other is the incitement problem. Um, I think that with misinformation and disinformation, there are ways of dealing with that problem that don't involve taking down the speech. You can label the speech. uh, In some circumstances, you can de-amplify it. You can make it clear to listeners that what the president is saying is wrong, that it's not, in fact, a good idea to inject yourself with bleach or whatever, you know. Uh, But there are ways of uh, leaving the speech up, but also explaining that it's wrong and addressing the harms that it might might cause. Incitement, I think, is in a different category, because by definition, when speech is incendiary, at least, you know, under a kind of narrow First Amendment definition of incitement, there isn't time for correcting uh, the speech or countering the speech or labeling it, there isn't time for the so-called marketplace of ideas to operate. And, you know, for that reason, I kind of think that Twitter was right to leave Trump's speech up as long as it did, right to to generally leave his account up as long as it did, but then also right to take it down uh, on January 6th when, you know, when he started using it for for incitement. Jamil, as you're speaking, Kai Diekman is wincing. And one of the things that I think is most Interesting, and if you like, unexpected about this whole global argument, because the world got embroiled on whether or not Trump should or shouldn't be on Twitter, was the fact that it was Angela Merkel. It was it was much more common in Germany to be saying that even though there's 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 quite a, a level of public dislike of Trump, that there was deep discomfort at the idea of a West Coast plutocrat putting someone off the platform. And Kai, just interested to know. Before you delve into sort of the kind of German debate about this, you personally, what was your view? I couldn't agree more with Angela Merkel. And you have to understand that even in Germany, there's a different cultural background uh, regarding freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is not our First Amendment in our Constitution, but our First Amendment in our Constitution is about the human dignity. And freedom of speech is only Article 5 for good reasons, because of our history. So uh, even there, there's an important cultural difference regarding the Anglo-Saxon world compared, for example, with the German society. But I couldn't agree more with the chancellor because I thought it was kind of a cheap trick to ban Trump in a situation where he was not going to be president for even more than like five, six, uh, uh, eight days. I really would like have to know what, how would have Twitter reacted if Trump had been reelected? Would have they banned them as well in that situation, or would there be a second thought? So, so Kai, sorry for interrupting, but then what is your answer? If you're saying you don't want Jack Dorsey to make this decision, but presumably you respect Jamil's point about incitement to violence, that there must be some kind of block on that kind of behavior. Do you, do you agree that even from elected officials? Then we have to, yeah, of course, he is, uh, as an elected official, he has to apply to the same rules as everybody else. Very simple to the legal rules. On the other side, we have to understand, is Twitter a media company that is allowed to take editorial decisions to ban people 
to say what is right or what is wrong? Or is Twitter a platform? If it's a, a media company, then it has to apply to the rules that apply for every media company. So then Twitter is responsible for all the content on its side, on its platform. And that makes it very different from its behavior nowadays. Facebook doesn't want to be a media company. Twitter doesn't want to be a media company. Some cases they decide, no, it, we're just the platform. It's the content and the content is there and you have to listen to it. And in other cases, they either decide to block somebody or uh, as uh, Jamal just suggested, that they are in a position where they say what the president or somebody else is saying is wrong. Who is going to decide then what is wrong and what is right? But then that's what I'm asking you. Who, who is the person in your configuration, in your view of the world, Kai, that should make that decision? It should be legal courts. If I've got problem with content being placed or being published on a, uh, on a platform like Facebook or Twitter or what else, I have to go to a, to a legal court. If we take... But, but hang on, hang on, let me, hang on, let's just go with that as an idea. Trump makes a comment on Twitter. I, as a third party member of the public, say that I'm unhappy about that. I think that's either misleading or dangerous. I will then take Twitter to court for, for its publication. Is that the idea? No, I would take the president to court for what he is doing on Twitter. And I, am, I can't uh, take Twitter to court. If it's going to be just a platform, they shouldn't have any editorial rights. And if they, if they want to take advantage of any editorial rights, then they are a media company. And a media company is treated in a totally different way than just a platform. But Anthony, I'm interested. We've moved from sort of your prescription or at least experience, which is he bullies you, you bully him. It's, you know, it's kind of the rules of the schoolyard there to... Kai's version, which is, you know, some version of due process, which I have to confess, I worry about because the the process itself is such an obstacle to anything actually happening. Do, do you have a view on legally, what are the, the, the new rules that should enable someone other than Jack Dorsey having to make this decision? Well, I think that's the central issue. So if this is a private company, uh, until we get over that issue. The reason why they don't want to be those companies is they want to take refuge under the laws that protect them from people using the platform, saying and doing things that are insidious. They don't want to be sued. They want immunity for that. Um, and so you're going into a whole other issue now. If you're telling me, okay, great, these are all going to be treated like governmental platforms, if you will, and then Kai is correct. But in the instance here in the United States, without that adjudication, I think that it's up to people like Jack Dorsey to make that decision. I think he made the right decision because I think at the end of the day, this lunatic was the president of the United States. You better understand what the lunatic is spewing so that you can get out there and defend and unite against the lunatic. I mean, that, 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 that was my view. Kai. I just would like to know, uh, Anthony, what, what do you think, how would have uh, Twitter reacted if Trump had been reelected. So I think that th he would have been banned if the the FBI and the counterintelligence organizations were talking to the people about at Twitter about cutting the air supply of Trump and others that were inciting and fomenting violence. Some of it was being done by direct messaging, frankly. And so where the line got crossed for President Trump is in the incitement 
And so I think Twitter made the decision, okay, we have to cut his air supply because he is fomenting violence in the country, which is why he was impeached. Of course, through the political process, he was acquitted. Uh, but he may not be acquitted uh, from a prosecutorial process. You know, obviously, the uh, District of Columbia is looking at what he did. If he's inciting violence, I think they have to remove him. I think they have to make an exception, even though he's a public figure. He's moving into, you know, fascist status. And so we've got to remove him. But if he gets reelected and there's no incitement of violence, I think they leave him on there to spew his nonsense. I mean, the good, the good news is Trump is a unifying figure. He's a great uniter. He just happens to be uniting all of us against him. Anybody that is normal and is not a white Christian fascist nationalist said, okay, I'm teaming up with AOC and, and Elizabeth Warren, okay, to be, beat this guy's ass in. And so- I'm not, I'm not sure, Anthony, just to be fair, I'm not sure that all of the people who voted for Donald Trump would count themselves in that, in that bracket. But let me just go back to Jamil. Jamil, can you untangle this for us? Because- So I, I got to push back. Can I push back Yeah, on sure, that? sure. I myself have to accept that he was spewing this sort of nonsense. I hit the override switch in my personality because I'm a lifelong Republican, voted, supported, and worked for him. But at the end of the day, you have to accept now four years of documented history of what he was doing and what he was saying. The guy is spewing racist invective, and you're still voting for him. We're going to give you a mulligan on the first vote, but on the second vote, you got to look in the mirror. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Jamil, I think we've kind of gone through the question of do you or don't you ban someone who's elected? But go to this central question, whether they're elected or not, the decision about who takes away the microphone. Yeah, who decides? I'm not sure I have a satisfying answer to that question, but I, I just want to um, say that I don't think Kai has a satisfying answer to it either. Both extremes that Kai has 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 offered here. So one is you know, treat the platforms as like essentially common carriers. You know, they have to carry everybody. They can't make any editorial decisions. 
then, you know, then they can continue to enjoy the immunity that they currently enjoy for hosting third-party speech. To me, that seems unpalatable because in, in that model, I think what we think of as the digital public sphere would be very quickly overrun with all kinds of garbage that currently gets moderated out by the platforms. Like right now, Twitter and Facebook uh, don't allow pornography, right? Or Facebook doesn't allow pornography anyway. And um, that is something that wouldn't be allowed under First Amendment rules. If you essentially told those companies that they can't make moderation decisions, then Facebook would look very different than it does, you know, than it does right now. And I'm not sure that those differences would make us all feel like, well, Facebook has improved uh, as a you know space for, for public discourse. So that's one extreme. I, I doubt it's appealing to any of us. The other extreme is uh, the platforms, as you put it, Kai, take responsibility for all the speech. Uh, you know, they make editorial decisions, but then they have to assume liability for uh, the speech that's on their platforms. I think all of the, thing, the things that are good about the platforms would disappear under that model because right now, you know, so they can host so much speech uh, only because they don't filter it out in advance. They don't, you know, they don't have to feel like. Uh, they own everything that Jamil says. And so they let me tweet without, you know, my having to submit my tweets in advance to Jack Dorsey for approval. But under your model, uh, which would involve the companies taking responsibility, legal responsibility for everything, they would effectively have to, you know, do that filtering in advance. And that would, you know, it would reduce the value of these platforms to ordinary people, I think, quite Quite dramatically, so I, I don't see either of those those options as as appealing, and I think we need to look somewhere in the middle, like some to, to some or some third possibility that might involve you know government regulation at a high level that creates the parameters within which the platforms can make uh, moderation decisions. That's more complicated, but but I I think that's got to be where the solution is. Let's. I, I want to come to that. In fact, what I'd really like to do is to dig into that central idea, right? What government regulation is that creates those parameters? But I, I want to just bring in uh, Dave Taylor, who's my colleague at Tortoise. And Dave, I'm interested because you were a journalist. You reported on Washington, D.C. through many of those years. And I suppose journalism owns some of this, right? It, it's not, We can't just sit here having, if you like, a airy conversation about the problems of Twitter and Trump and not acknowledge the extent to which actually journalism was the megaphone for so much of what Trump said on Twitter. How do you read what happened in those years and the Trump-Twitter relationship? It was a pretty heartbreaking experience to be on a news desk in New York in those um, those early months of Trump. Uh, I was at the Guardian then, and uh, you know you'd wake up, and Trump would have done a tweet in the early hours of the morning. Someone in London would have credulously copied it out, and there used to be this genre of stories we talked about called Trump's done a tweet, and there was nothing there to challenge it. And so we were very strong in trying to say. We can't just publish this. We have to actually contextualize. And, and you know, here at Tortoise, we, we, we have sort of eschewed breaking news. It's really important that people do breaking news with integrity and with grip, because otherwise he was getting a free hit all the time. But, but what do you make, Dave, of the, of the argument that is, if you like, a version of Jamil's argument that 
the, the public does need to know what Trump is saying. And Trump's point, and certainly many of his supporters would say, we don't want a world in which Guardian journalists in London are filtering what the president of the United States says. We want to hear what the president of the United States says. It's not up to you to make those choices. And I, I think that's right. That the, While he was in, in the highest office, there's no question that everything a president says is newsworthy. And it is important for um, an informed electorate to know what he says and thinks. So I think I'm in full accord that for reasons of transparency and accountability, uh, they had to keep him up there. Can I please respond to, to that point? Yeah, go ahead. David makes a, first of all, just it's, it's such a crucial point about how we, the media, um, are a really key player here. And so I think that's important uh, to keep in mind when we talk about this question that you've raised, James, of who decides, you know, should Jack Dorsey be deciding? These are really questions about power, about market power. You know, we worry about companies that 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 have too much uh, gatekeeping power over the internet and public discourse. Uh, we, we worry about how they're going to use that. But we need to be really clear here. Twitter is not Google. If, if you couldn't find my stories on Google, that'd be a big problem for my stories. No one would read them. But Twitter, you know, it's got like 30 million users in the United States. It's really not a monopoly gatekeeper in the same way. I think one reason that sometimes we lapse into thinking that it is, is because we're friggin' obsessed with it. Journalists are really outliers in how hooked up almost like a drug we are to Twitter. And that's why, you know, David's point makes me think of that because the power that Trump got from Twitter was sort of beamed through a prism and, and magnified by the, the media that was so hooked into it. If you had asked me last year, hey, would kicking Trump off Twitter really change the ubiquity of what he has to say? I would say, no, he's the president. He'll find other ways to get his message out there. Well, I was really wrong. And I think I was wrong for two reasons. One is that I underestimated Trump's personal reliance on Twitter. So I think that's part one. And part two is the the, the way the jur- that journalists interact with Twitter. And I think it's fair to criticize journalists for that. I thought Jamil made some really good points about the pitfalls of either extreme um, between, you know, treating platforms as like essentially common carriers versus making them responsible for everything. But I think it's important to push back on the idea that making them legally responsible would be analogous to forcing them to pre-screen all their content. I think there's, there are lots of other ways in which liability could play out, and it could look more like a, a world in which they have to respond to complaints and have some kind of procedure, kind of like how we deal with copyright, which is imperfect, but it sort of is functional. I just want to plant that idea out there that there are other ways liability could develop for internet platforms. Can we get into that? Sorry, Kai, I know you wanted to get in. Do you want to say something? Yeah, there's one thing that really disturbs me. Trump unified us in a way that we are very much against him. Well, we all can agree that, you know, with Trump, it was the right person to be banned from the platform because of the dislike of Trump. What if there is not a Jack Dorsey, but somebody totally, somebody else, there's a Chinese fund that somebody suddenly is the majority holder of Twitter for any reasons. And they've got totally different dislikes. And then they take the decision to put somebody away, to silence somebody. This is the one thing that really disturbs me because uh, actually Trump is probably the, the wrong person to have this discussion. The other question I would like to ask Jamil, to find a middle way, we need these rules. 
how can we find in a globalized world regarding a global platform rules that apply to all these different areas and cultures and continents? Uh, it's not about pornography, but for example, um, you know, uh, the sun in, in the UK or builds in uh, Germany, we used to publish picture of nude women like, like Playboy which does not apply with the rules of Facebook or Twitter and other cases. So how do we find these common rules for a global platform? So, so Kai, can we do this in two steps? Because there's a point about how do you apply rules for different cultures and different countries in a world of global platforms. But I think the even harder question is, how do you set those rules? What what are the actual rules that we're talking about here in terms of what's sayable and what's not? What's the truth and, and who's the arbiter of it? And so, Jamil, do you want to take both of those questions? Yeah. I mean, I think that democratically accountable governments should set those rules in the first instance. As Kai says, different societies set the lines in different places. In the United States, in many areas, the First Amendment protects speech that is not protected in other countries. I think democratically accountable governments should set those rules and then private actors, including social media platforms, should make, I'm not sure I would always characterize them in this way, but editorial or content moderation decisions within those parameters. To me, that seems relatively straightforward. And, you know, Facebook's rules don't have to be the same as Twitter's and Twitter's certainly don't have to be the same as, you know, the social media platform in France or in Russia or in some other, you know, in some other country that can be different in different places. These freedom of speech issues, right, they're not new. It's not as though incitement to hatred, you know, Violence. These these are not new problems. That's true. That's true. But but there are there are new aspects to this. So why can't we take the body of constraints on free speech that exist already, whether it's for the press or for broadcasting, for radio, for other media? Why can't we just ship that to apply to the platform world? Well, I'm not I'm not sure that would be such a bad idea. But I think that there are other things about the platforms that present challenges. So one is that the amplification decisions that the platforms make. So their decisions to you know, privilege certain kinds of speech and marginalize other kinds of speech, uh, those decisions are made invisibly and on the basis of very sensitive data about all of our expressive and associational activities, which is sucked up as we browse the web. Uh, Facebook has not just information about which New York Times articles you read, but how long you spent on each page and which article you read next. I mean, it's very, very granularly detailed information about your expressive and associational activities. And on the basis of that data, Facebook makes decisions about what to show you. And that is something new. But I think the, the way to address that issue is to go at the data collection directly and limit what kinds of data these companies can collect and limit the purposes for which they should they can use it, uh, give individual users more control over how their data is used. To me, the content moderation questions are less interesting and less important in part because as you say, they're not, you know, they're not new. And in part because most of the damage to the public sphere that seems most significant to me stems not from the content moderation decisions, but, but from these less visible uh, decisions about platform design and, um, you know, algorithmic uh, decisions. So, so let's, so, so Gilad, 
take Jamil's starting point, right, which is, look, we're going to have some content moderation issues. We are going to be able to transfer, let's say, some of the body of our existing legal constraints on free speech onto the internet world. But there are some issues of scale and data that are new here. What kind of regulatory body that doesn't enable the government censorship that Jamil originally feared or the risk that Kai mentioned of a group of people just taking control of a platform and letting their values run amok. What's the regulatory body that should be authorized to have, if you like, state power, but independence of political influence? How would you approach that? I have to begin by just saying I really co-signed the last point that Jamil made, which is that the the if, if we're worried about the influence of social media companies on our information, on the quality of information around us, writ really large, we have to pay attention to the many consequences of their business models, not just con- individual content choices or even policies. To your question, I think there are two main things to think about. The first is competition. Under a theme that's that's sort of implicit in a lot of the comments that have been made today is that we're not discussing a competitive marketplace and our anxieties about empowering the leadership of individual corporations to make these decisions would dissipate somewhat if there were more of a sense that people had other options, could take their business elsewhere. And this is a really complicated issue that there's no one silver bullet, but you would want to pull whatever levers you need to pull to get to a place in which there are more places for people to express themselves. It is easier to go between them. So issues of being able to, you know, portability, being able to take your existing network of friends or followers from one social network to another so you're not locked in. Interoperability so that you're able to, um, you know, maybe see posts from one network somewhere else so that the whoever already has the biggest advantage doesn't stay frozen in first place. So I think answering those types of questions, as well as things such as breaking up individual companies. That's something that is on the table and rightly so. That's one part of it. But I don't think it's the whole part of it because it's not purely a a question of monopoly concentration. There are things that happen online that are very socially destructive and they're not all taking place on Facebook or YouTube. They might be taking place on smaller murkier sites like 8chan, for example, or there are websites that exist on the internet for the purpose of people defaming other people for fun or for clicks or for what to sell advertising. And so that brings us to the other piece of the puzzle, which you just, which you brought up, James, which is, should the same rules that limit speech apply online? In in the United States, that really gets us to a conversation about one law, which is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which was passed in 1996 in the the early days of of user-generated content online. And um, the key move that Section 230 implemented was saying online platforms are not going to be legally liable for content posted by users. And that is a difference between the online world and the analog world. And as that statute has been interpreted by judges in the United States over the last 25 years, the gulf has widened perhaps even more than was originally contemplated by the law. Angela, can we just go off to this for a moment, right? Because let's go to the analog world, right? If you look back at the history of corporations, the history of business, At least in the UK, we created what are known here as PLCs, publicly limited companies. 
And essentially, they were created by law, and there was a trade-off that says you, the company, can operate publicly, and you're limited because you have a limited liability, right? We give you a license to operate as long as you abide by these rules, and as a result of that, we limit your liability if and when you go bankrupt i.e. there was obviously from the start in the nature of capitalism, at least as originally intended and drawn from the kind of thinking of Adam Smith, the the idea that there was a trade-off between what would be certain the private interest and the public interest. And Section 230 seems to me to be an obvious exemption to the public interest, right, because it exempts internet companies from, if you like, that liability. And I wonder how you take the principle of the PLC to, if you like, the public intercorporation online. Well, there are two parts to Section 230, and and one part was designed to actually empower companies to engage in content moderation. For reasons that are not worth getting into right now, there was some question when the law was passed of whether companies would get in trouble for actually trying to police their platforms. Um, but but the other part of the law is, is the one that I think is more directly at issue here, which is the liability shield, the immunity, and the, the, the defense of it. And I, I think Jamil and I will, will not see eye to eye on this, but the, I, I can, I've spent a lot of time talking to people about this. And the, the simplest defense that you would give is, and Jamil was kind of alluding to this earlier, is that if platforms that host user content could be liable for it, they would just be overly censorious because of the pace and the scale of online speech and because of how different that is from earlier forms of technology. To avoid getting sued into oblivion, you would just be supremely heavy-handed and we wouldn't have this flourishing land. And you can see with my facial expression that I'm skeptical of this idea, but you wouldn't have this flourishing land of online discourse that has enriched our lives and made us smarter and wiser and better able to govern ourselves. That's the defense of this. Even in the, you know, with media companies and, you know, I've been was built and we've got millions of uh, readers and millions of users. When we started with the uh, pre-moderation in regards of user-generated content and user-generated comments, we were simply within days overwhelmed because, you know, we had thousands and thousands of comments that could not have been checked and could have not been published. And of course, there was an agreement then to say, we can't handle it in the old way, letter to the editor and have got these 20 or 30 letters and then decide what is going to be published and what is not going to be published, but we do a post-moderation. Uh, because that's the only way how you can do it in a digital world where every user, every consumer is a publisher himself. So uh, I, I want to just in the last few minutes we've got left, try to come away with some practical things that we can do because it's easy to be frustrated and if you like, be despairing witnesses to the world. Let's see if we can do it slightly better than that. Dave, why don't you go first? Is there a version of what Jamil talked about, if you like, a middle ground that isn't heavy-handed government intervention and isn't, you know, the freewheeling rights of private platforms? So it's a combination then of regulation, but also duties imposed upon private companies. The thing I would like to see, in addition to what uh, Jamil was talking about, is transparency about um, those algorithms about how how moderation happens so so people you know people who go looking for it can choose to have confidence or not in how twitter or facebook or any other platform makes its calls i would also say though that 
you know, Twitter didn't start the fire and, um, you know, politicians need to, uh, we need to remember who said these things in the first place. Uh, Anthony, your thought on that, isn't it in the end, this is not really Jack Dorsey's problem, this is a Donald Trump problem. No, let me, let me, let me tell you, we are in, you tell me, is this 1924? Is this 1936? Uh, you guys tell me where it is, okay? Uh, because this is a battle that got won on November 3rd, uh, and there was a skirmish on January 6th, which was ridiculous. Had Trump been better organized uh, and more vicious, um, you know, he had willing supporters. You know, you got a group of white people in this country uh, that are buying my pillows and catheters from Fox News commercial interruptions that don't want black and brown people in their government. I mean, that's just the facts. You know, we can pretend that that's not happening, but that is 100% happening. And that news channel is catering to those people. So we're, we're in a full on war. This is an intellectual, ideological, political battle for the American democracy and possibly the UK democracy and maybe even the French democracy. The Germans seem to have learned lessons from their history and they seem calmer and more moderate, frankly. And, and Anthony, what's your answer then to the question of how Jack Dorsey should run Twitter and what safeguards he or any other owners of that company could put in place for future politicians who want to abuse the platform? You know, re reflecting on what Kai is saying, you, you probably have to have a Donald J. Trump rule. And the rule should be, you know, there's a certain norms based on our society. And if you're exceeding those norms, then Twitter has to invoke a policy to reject your, your speech. And I guess the other issue is going to be about accuracy and lies that are being told on Twitter by very influential people. You know, and so I guess you have to have a Donald J. Trump rule or some type of exclusion. But you know, you've got a hornet's nest there. I'll tell you what I'm doing. Okay. We're going to beat him back, okay, in 2022, and we're going to beat him back in 2024. And I can't tell you the time and the money that I spent in 2020 on voter registration rallies and speaking on Zoom calls, radio calls, television appearances to explain the systemic danger of him, but also Senator Dossie and Senator Lunatic Cruz and some of these other crazy people who want to subvert the American democracy. So, so we have to beat them back. Now, the problem is when you're beating somebody back and you talk like me, you get a little bit of a Cassandra status. You see, because I can just, I'm, I'm looking at James's face and, you know, he's pushed back a little bit because I'm a little intemperate about what the, way, the way I'm saying it. And I, and I get that, okay? But here's the thing, without that, you're not ringing the bell. This son of a bitch Okay, he, are we allowed to curse on this? I'm assuming you are, right? Because you, you would have never invited me on if we weren't allowed to curse. So this son of a bitch, okay, he almost won the election. He, he lost the election by 43,000 votes. Go look at the vote tallies in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. And he flipped those states. He would have won the election. Forget about the popular vote. When Lindsey Graham says Trump plus, He's like, let's dig up some more white knuckle dragging white supremacists, okay, to come to the voter rolls to win the next presidential round. We don't have to win the popular vote. So let me let me finish up, Kai, with you, if I might, because is there an answer to this that's other than the one that Anthony says, which is in the end, we have to duke it out in the public square? 
everything that has been said here is correct about uh, the transparency of algorithms and, and so on. Uh, unfortunately, you know, it's always the bad guys in history that uh, learn how to use new information technologies much faster than the competitors. Uh, I don't want to give any examples from the German history, but it's that way. And this is what I think what we have to do. Uh, we won't be able to create any new competition by founding a new state Twitter or whatever. So we have to live with the monopolies, we have to live with Facebook, we have to live with Twitter. But what we have to make sure is that there is a new competition between guys like Trump or Erdogan and democratic politicians. So what I think is important that we enable, that we enable other parts of society, politicians, journalists, to use these platforms in an efficient way, like demagogues, like Trump and others do it. So I I have to say a huge thank you to you because I came into this conversation with actually this idea, and I've been nurturing this idea for quite some time about how you might come away from this debate with something like the public standard. I, I grew up in the British newspaper business. We were underpinned by legislation which essentially gave us rights to intrude on privacy because it served a broader public interest. I then worked at the BBC. There's an idea around public service broadcasting. And it struck me for a while that there's been an idea that's worth pursuing around the public standard, around the application of some set of public values around the outcomes of of the internet platforms. But I just want to sort of pick up, if you like, to try and sort of pull at least my thoughts together on what I've heard. Because actually, I think the thing that Jamil said, which came, as you could see in my face, you said it, Jamil, as a sort of shock to me was, actually, the argument for Trump being on Twitter is a public interest argument. And actually, what I thought was most important about that was, if you anchor this whole debate, not in individual rights, but in the public interest, if that, if you like, is the oil that greases the wheel of these machines, then you take a different approach. And I hope you don't end up getting caught between a false and binary choice between Orwellian state intervention on one side or libertarian freedom of speech arguments on the other. You get into the weeds of, I suppose, what you were describing, uh, particularly, you know, Jamil and, and Gilad and Dave, this idea that actually let's focus on some of these specific things. I thought, Jamil, your point about you can de-emphasize certain things on a platform. You can introduce a certain amount of friction so that they don't spread as freely. I thought, Gilad, your point, which was, and you said it just in passing, DMs, right? Hang on a second. What are we thinking about the private spread of uh, these forms of information? And likewise, this point about, you know, data, data usage and privacy and the responsibility of newsrooms to contextualize. All of these are small and mechanical points. They're not sweeping ideas, but together they could form a body of work that would actually change the behavior of these platforms. I suppose in the end, Kai, I take to heart the point you made right at the top about human dignity coming in the German constitution before freedom of speech. It's not just a different cultural point, but it's quite an important point for us as we're struggling with the costs of freedom in the outcomes of uh, of our society. And so I think there's something there in the balance of risk and reward, what we value in our politics and our society. And finally, I should say, Anthony, in response to your point, I do think that these arguments are real. I do think that platforms are going to have to decide. But whatever they decide, I suspect that you're right, that in the end, these political arguments are going to get fought out by politicians and political parties and their supporters, and there's no substitute for that. 
So, uh, listen, I just wanted to say thank you also, because I, I meant to say right at the top, thank you for doing this. Anthony, thanks for doing it. I know uh, that you're busy. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Jamil, too, likewise. It's really... Happy to do it. Good to meet you all. Very good to do it. Thanks so much. And Kai, really nice to see you again. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks. Have a good afternoon. Thank you for listening to this, our first podcast series of Thinkins. In the battle for truth, the argument is far from settled. And at Tortoise, we're not only a slow newsroom, but we're an open one. I really would love to hear from you. So please do join us. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and join as my friend using the code JAMES50. Or in fact, do just drop me a line, james.harding at tortoisemedia.com. If you have views on truth and trust, please do let me know. Or in fact, as we're starting to research the next series, please say how you think this exercise in organized listening, this forum for civilized disagreement, might help in coming to a clearer sense of what to think. Thank you for listening to The Battle for Truth. I'm James Harding. My producer is Katie Gunning. Tom Kinsella wrote the original music. And it's a podcast from Tortoise Studios, which is run by Kerry Thomas. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.